But what about what actual Jews did, Rabbi Leanne? Okay, we can read the Bible all the live long day, but it's certainly not Bible times. And thank goodness for that, because I don't do well in the heat. Are you planning a Jewish or interfaith wedding? Are you lost on where to even begin planning the ceremony, let alone finding a rabbi to help you? Well, it doesn't matter whether one of you is Jewish or you're both Jewish. You deserve a guide. So take a deep breath. I promise it will all be okay. Welcome to Your Jewish Wedding with Rabbi Leanne. Here, I can be everyone's rabbi. (laughs) Yours too. My guests and I will share everything we know to help make your Jewish or interfaith wedding full of tradition and perfectly yours. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Your Jewish Wedding Podcast. I'm coming to you from another Friday recording. That's right. This seems to be my schedule, my little schedule. It's my motivation to get through my pre-Shabbos chores, which I can't stand, to sit here with you, which I love. So I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so, so much. I've been having so much fun so far. I know that we've had several episodes talking about the philosophy, the history of Jewish weddings, when you can have them, thoughts about intermarriage, all kinds of stuff like that, how to find a rabbi. I think we're ready to start talking about the actual elements of a Jewish wedding ceremony. How about that? So the first question I ask my couples when we sit down for our big planning meeting is, are you planning to sign a ketubah? So many of you probably have an idea of what a ketubah is. I think if you search Jewish wedding on Google, um, advertisements for ketubahs are probably one of the initial things that will pop up for you. They, in the year 2023, they are big, beautiful pieces of artwork, usually custom written for you as a couple, designed to hang on your wall. Absolutely beautiful text, sort of like wedding vows. We'll talk about that more, obviously. And there are endless options to the beautiful artwork that you can choose for your ketubah, or you can make the artwork yourself. I've now had three couples where the artwork of their ketubah was original within the last year and a half. So it's something that people are really embracing, probably to cut costs, but also to make it very, very personal. It's beautiful. But what even is it? Because when you've seen ketubot, which is the Hebrew plural for ketubah, so I'll use ketubahs and ketubot interchangeably, probably. When you've seen ketubot online, whether you've been on Etsy or ketubah.com or any other ketubah designer's website, you've probably just seen They've been framed to show you the artwork. And then in the center of the artwork is a bunch of Hebrew and then a bunch of English. And you are probably reading it and assuming that the translation in English is a translation of the Hebrew. That may or may not be true. And actually, fun fact, in a traditional ketubah, an Orthodox ketubah, even today, it is not written in Hebrew. The characters are Hebrew, the letters are Hebrew, but technically the language it's written in is Aramaic. 
So we will talk about all that. I'm just going to start with a definition of ketubah. Ketubah means it is written. So in the past, when I've spoken to couples about what all this is, I have to bring out a mea culpa here. I have probably been mistaken in the way that I have presented it is, oh, it's a marriage contract. It just, it's like a prenup. And technically that's what it is, I guess. But I want to articulate why, you know, even if you're eschewing a lot of traditional aspects of a Jewish wedding and you're thinking, man, this is so archaic. I don't really want to sign a contract, especially not a prenup. Gosh, that sounds so cold. And it sounds like we're assuming we're going to get divorced. Okay, take a pause. Because I want to emphasize, if if you don't know, if, if you're Jewish and you've forgotten, or if you're not Jewish, and this is sort of not part of your religious culture, I just want to take a moment and remind ourselves how important it is in Jewish history, Jewish heritage, and the Jewish faith for stuff to be written down. Okay, The word ketubah, as I said, means it is written. Writing stuff down is a really, really big deal for Jews. I don't think I can emphasize this enough. Documentation is important to us in general, and we'll get to that in a second. But if you think about it, what is the center of Jewish religious life, Jewish cultural life? What is pretty much everything we do based on? That's right. It's the Torah. And what is the Torah? It's a scroll where stories and accounts and speeches and lists of rules were compiled and written and copied and written again and again and again. Every Torah scroll is a copy of another Torah scroll, right? That's how they're written. They're copied from document to document. It is quite literally a chain of transmission from what Jewish tradition tells us was an OG Torah scroll back in the days of Moses all the way to today. You can buy a brand new Torah scroll today. Quite a big deal. And in fact, we have found really, really old Torah scrolls, over a thousand years old. Pretty incredible. And there are a couple differences between uh, some of the very old editions we've found, but honestly, very, very few differences. In other words, the Jewish people is a people who is really into writing stuff down and puts a great deal of importance and significance on stuff being written down as a record of our story, yes, but also as a representation that that thing was important enough to write down and to document in that way. And all the more so for Ketubah, it was documented in a really beautiful way. So it's not just a document, okay? The Torah is a record of a serious, serious, long-lasting connection between God and the Jewish people. And a lot of people will pull out that metaphor even during a Jewish wedding ceremony. But the precedent of that record being so important and so holy, right? Mekudash means separate from everything else. Kodesh means separate and different from everything else. So your ketubah will be that also, right? There is going to be no other document like it anywhere ever in the world. And we will talk about why that is. Actually, I think maybe in a second episode, I'm going to do two episodes on ketubah for now. So just know that, you know, in the past, if you've talked with me about ketubahs, I may have made it seem like kind of not a big deal or kind of only symbolic or maybe even flippant about it. But the more I've studied, you know, what do I always say? There's always more learning to do. The more I've studied, the more I'm realizing that it's, you know, the spiritual significance of a document between two people 
who are committing to spend their lives together. And in the Jewish wedding vows, it says they are going to be unique to one another, more important, more central than anybody else in their lives. Gosh, it really changes my understanding of a ketubah from a legal document to a really beautiful spiritual experience. Honestly, I'm not trying to be mushy gushy here, but it's pretty cool. Always more learning to do. So what do we know about ketubot? Like, why do we even have them? First of all, ketubot are one of the oldest customs that we know of that has been continuously practiced from the first exile from the temple, so hundreds of years BC, to today. So just think about that. Between two and 3,000 years old is this custom of Jewish people writing a contract at the to mark the beginning of their marriage and to outline some of the terms of that marriage. It's, it's really old. Ketubas are literally older than Jesus, you guys. So that is my introduction. We're going to do an overview of the whole narrative journey, I hope, in this episode of what a ketubah's history and significance is through the ages, just so we get a better understanding. And I think that if you get through this episode, I think it can only make your decision whether or not to get and sign a ketubah that much stronger. That's what I hope, at least. So we'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. Do you guys like my 1940s swing band aesthetic that I'm going for here? You know, on these solo episodes, I I don't really get any breaks to drink water. You might hear it in my voice. And so you will enjoy some some big band aesthetic while while I uh, take care of that here. So of course, I broke off my introduction halfway through. You know, I'm just going to give another disclaimer. You guys know by now, this is episode 12 You know that in this podcast, we go into some deep dives, which some of you may call tangents, and that's fine. The Jewish people have a very strong tradition of going off into tangents forever and ever. See the Talmud and all its commentaries. I like to call these deep dives or tangents fun, super detailed facts from me to you. It's a gift filled with love. So the other thing is that As I've said in previous episodes, I am, in fact, a human. I make mistakes, as all humans do. And I change my opinion based on things that I learn. So it could be that something I say in this this episode does not reflect what I've said to you. Consider it an example that your rabbi is always learning new things and recalibrating her opinion based on what she learns. Lucky for you and lucky for me. What a great religion to be part of, don't you think? Okay. Oh, final disclaimer. And this is really important to me. Even if you are listening to this and it's not important to you, I want you guys to know that this is an important disclaimer to me. Okay. Are you ready? The first part of this discussion will be using heteronormative terms. So in in the first part of this discussion, probably for this entire episode, because we're just doing history, I'll be talking about bride and groom. This is for convenience, but it's also a reflection of the historical reality of marriage contracts and marriage in general, which is that before very recent years, the past couple of decades, we did not see 
same-sex commitment ceremonies ever. There, there were no marriages. And even if there were marriages, they weren't official marriages, according to any law, including Jewish law. Okay. Um, and I actually don't know what the state of same-sex kedushin, which is legal marriages in Judaism, is in same-sex couples. I'll have to look into that. What an interesting episode. Okay, we'll talk about that. If you guys would like to hear it, let me know. Your Jewish Wedding Podcast at gmail.com. Please give me all your feedback and requests for future episodes, things you're interested in related to Jewish weddings. I want to talk about it. So in the next episode, when I talk more about contemporary kachubas, you know, considerations that you as a couple might have for your kachubo, it'll probably be a mini episode. In that episode, which is talking about today, the year 2023, um, I will be sure and certain to shift my language from a heteronormative mode into a more inclusive mode, because I want everybody to understand that uh, it's important to me that we are inclusive and we make sure to include same-sex couples in our discussion of kachubas, because goodness knows there are plenty of same-sex couples getting married in Jewish weddings. God love them. And they are buying kachubas and I want them to know what to put in it too. Okay. What did I tell you? What did I tell you about fun, super detailed facts, aka tangents from me? All right. Okay, friends, let's go back to the Bible. That's where all our stuff starts, isn't it? I feel like every single one of my little historical podcasts, we talk about the Bible, but it's important for reasons I said at the beginning of this episode. You're still with me? You're still with me. So we see that in the Bible, the first book of the Torah, Genesis, Guys, it is drama. Okay. I think I've mentioned this before, but it is full of, I mean, it is, it is like Grey's Anatomy, but they're like wearing sandals and plain clothes because they live in the desert. Intense. Okay. It is so drama. Who is in love with who? Who wants to marry who? What they have to do to get married? Oh no, now they're trying to have a baby. I mean, it's endless. And the drama is, you can't even imagine. Even if you just, if, if you want to be entertained and learn, Jewishly, just sit down and read the book of Genesis. What a ride. Okay. Anyway, we see in Genesis as early as Isaac and Rebecca, the concept of a financial exchange being taking place to mark a new marriage between a bride and a groom. Okay. So as early as this, the woman would traditionally leave her household and join the man's household. Okay. And there is the reality that all humans worked to sustain the household. When a woman left her father's household and went to her new husband's household, that represented a loss from her father's household because that was labor she would not be contributing to his household. And I know that that's not the typical conception that we have now. And I will explain why that changed a little bit. So we'll see in the Bible that um, Isaac's son, Jacob, when he met Rachel and fell in love with her, another super drama story. You guys should go read it. Incredible. Anyway, Jacob had to work for seven years to sort of pay off what Rachel was worth to her father. And then there was even more drama and he ended up having to work for 14 years and it was a whole thing. Anyway, This idea is nothing new, right? We've all heard of dowries and bride prices and all kinds of stuff, okay? But what about what actual Jews did, Rabbi Leanne? Okay, we can read the Bible all the live long day, but it's certainly not Bible times. And thank goodness for that because 
I don't do well in the heat. What I can tell you is that we have found, we being not me, we being archaeologists, have found a lot, actually, a lot of ketubas, old ones and older ones. And the most ancient one that they have found is from the year 440 BCE. Archaeologists have found an actual Jewish marriage record, aka a ketubah, that was written during the period of the return from the Babylonian exile. So that would have been the Babylonian exile ended in around 372 BCE. So it's right around there, right around 400 BCE. It was written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the spoken language of Jews living in the Middle East at that time. Okay, it was not, Hebrew was not spoken by the Jewish people at that time. Some of you may know this, especially if you know things about Christianity, because you will know that Jesus did not speak Greek in which the New Testament is written, nor did he speak Hebrew in which the Old Testament is written. He spoke Aramaic. Fun fact, the movie that Mel Gibson made, The Passion of the Christ, they wrote or tried to write the whole dialogue of the movie or the entire script in Aramaic, even though Aramaic's dead. Okay, it's a dead language. But anyway, about 300 years after this super old ketubah was found, we can see in uh, books of Jewish law that the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court, formalized the language of it so that it would be more standard. But this super old Jewish marriage record is so fascinating. Why? Because it tells us about what Jewish people were doing even before there was a law recorded for how to do it in terms of creating this this record of, okay, we're entering into a marriage. What is the literal deal? Okay. So this couple got married in Egypt. So quite close to the land of Israel, but not quite. It was actually written from the POV of the groom. And it is declaring that he has accepted the bride as his wife. After that, they wrote down all the terms of the marriage contract. So I'm going to put a link to where I got all this information that I'm sort of like live summarizing for you right now, by the way, in the show notes. So the groom paid the bride's father five shekels, which was, we understand, which was a standard for like marriage contracts in Persia at the time as a mohar for his daughter. What's a mohar? It's basically the price that represents what the bride's father is losing by her leaving his household. Okay. But then the ketubah says he also received a gift of 65 and a half shekels from the groom as well. So it's really interesting because we can already see that there were two separate sums in this earliest ketubah. And the first one was merely symbolic. So it was a formality of an older custom that had even lived until now, from which we can deduce that ketubahs are much, much older, even than 2,500 years within the Jewish people. Okay. Now here's the really interesting part. According to the marriage contract, the bride had equal rights with her husband. What does that mean? Equal rights. Let me tell you, she had her own property that she could do what she pleased with. So she could sell it. She should, she could give it to her her sisters, her friends, her kids, whatever. And here's the real kicker. She had the right to pronounce a sentence of divorce against her husband, even as he had the right to pronounce it against her. So I gather this was innovative 
um, perhaps in the past, and even in contemporary Jewish law, it's typically the the husband who has to initiate divorce proceedings. But this super old ketubah said, Mm-mm. bride can decide she wants a divorce on equal grounds as he can. And all she had to do was appear before the court of the community and declare that she had developed an aversion. Okay, so here we have this super old ketubah, 2,500 years old-ish, give or take. It has no-fault divorce. What? Guys, we have some states in the United States of America that don't have no-fault divorce. (laughs) So when people talk about the ketubah as a feminist document, yes, you'll see that it does include monetary sums and you know, today they are fairly standardized. But I hope as part of this conversation, I will explain to you in good enough detail why it's it's it can be seen as a feminist document. And, and for that, I think it's super cool um, that contemporary couples choose to have one. So the article where I found this information says that it explains that we don't really know whether these um, innovations of the equality of, of the wife to her husband um, was something that Jews were doing as a standard or whether Persian Babylonian law had as a standard. We're just not sure because it's so old, but it was upheld in this Jewish marriage document. Very cool. So I explained how the rule of this particular ketubah went beyond contractual agreements, that is monetary agreements, right? Even though it included a lot of mention of money, right? This this groom is basically paying this bride's dad, to take her away, right? It looks like he's acquiring a woman in that first part. But the bulk of the ketubah is about protecting her future interest, the bride's future interest. It is imagining all the terrible things that could happen within that marriage and giving her safety to protect herself, her livelihood, her well-being, her existence in the world from those things. Okay, so she has her own property. She can ask for a divorce. And remember, she has what her husband paid her dad at the beginning, which is 70 shekels. It's a lot of shekels then, 2,500 years ago. Now 70 shekels, well, in Israel, 70 shekels is like five bucks. If I'm wrong, tell me. Okay. Um, And so I think, you know, the point I wanted to make about this super ancient kachuba is that even back then, it was starting the marriage off with an expectation of respect an individual agency within that relationship. Very cool, right? With all the language we hear about two people becoming one, and now your lives are joined together, and now you're the focus of my universe. You know, Jewish culture has always recognized, like, listen, things go south all the time. We need to make sure that our daughters are taken care of. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing, personally. Um, So of course, like everything else, Ketubah's evolved pretty quickly, just like any customs of the people. Even in that first ketubah, remember I told you the mohar, which was the the bride price, was merely symbolic. Um, And it changed. We can see this stuff changing when we find ketubahs from even the late biblical period. Why? Because around that time, culturally, it became more common for men to remain unmarried. So instead of the groom paying, you know, all those 70 shekels to the bride's father, now we start to see ketubahs include dowries. In other words, what she's bringing with her to enhance her new household, to enhance the groom's household. So it is usually money 
and or valuables, sometimes livestock. There's mentions to cows and goats, things that she is bringing with her as a gift. And the agreement from historians and archaeologists, anthropologists, whatever, is that this is an enticement for men to marry her. And if you are a fan of Jane Austen, as I am, you guys know how powerful that dowry is. Y'all remember in Sense and Sensibility how Willoughby did Marianne Dashwood dirty because she was broke and he had a chance to marry someone who was super rich. And that is how we learn that he was a scuzzbucket. Should I do a podcast episode about Jane Austen? I don't think so. But if any of you want to chat with me about Jane Austen, slide into my DMs. We'll talk. Okay. So even though the bride was bringing a dowry with her, that didn't change that the Ketubah was a guarantor of her future security. Okay. When she came into the marriage with money, with things of value, with contributions to the household and the family's livelihood, she came into that marriage with power. And in those Ketubah where it detailed her dowry was the stipulation that in the case of divorce, she takes it all back with her. She brought 10 goats. She leaves with 10 goats. She brought a really nice bed frame. She leaves with the dang bed frame or the monetary value thereof. Okay, so anthropologists think that this is reflective of the desire to make marriage easier, as we said, and to make divorce harder because the groom would be losing that much more money. They agree that it was a move to make marriages more stable, probably in a, you know, due to a historical time of great instability for the Jewish people as a whole. Now, there's speculation that we lose a little bit of the feminism at this time, because if a groom has to pay that much money if he gets divorced, and it's not written into that ketubah that the the bride can initiate divorce, it's going to be real hard to get him to agree to a divorce, no matter how miserable things are. So there's a big debate on, you know, how feminist the ketubah remained. And we, we actually have reason to believe that it went a little bit backwards. Okay. In the Talmudic era, we are moving into the Talmud, which is a couple hundred years post final exile from Jerusalem, first century BCE. Remember that the text of that ketubah was formalized. Nobody knows exactly who formalized it, but most people think it was Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach. And there have been some adjustments and modifications, but the ketubah text that we have today closely resembles that codified one. Okay, still written in Aramaic, even to this day. Why? Because it was the language of the law. It was the language people spoke in the language of the law. And remember, this is a contract between two lay people. It's very important that they understand what's in it. Interestingly, though, there's an entire tractate of the Talmud that's devoted to what's inside of a ketubah and what it means. So during the Talmudic era, these little adjustments took on a really interesting tone. Instead of just being about property, money, and individual rights, it started to include some kind of sweet emotional things. So we see the text in the Talmud cited as this, the groom vows to work for, to honor, to feed, and to support his wife in the custom of Jewish men who do these things for their wives faithfully. In other words, it's a reflection that 
marriage has clearly become more than a financial arrangement in this Jewish culture, right? The fact that the word honor is in there at all, supporting you according to the custom of Jewish men, it means that, listen, we recognize that there's a social standard for how we treat our husbands and wives. They're very much the most important people in our lives. And we're adding some general promises of honoring one another, supporting one another, even this, even this many hundred years back, thousand plus years back. It goes on to say, yes, if we get divorced, I will give you this settlement. And it was 200 silver zuzim, or I found in some places zakukim. It could be a difference in, in exile locations. I'm not sure. I'm not a historian. In addition, I will give you in this marriage food, clothing, necessities of life, and get this, guys, conjugal needs. So in the traditional, traditional ketubah, when we are speaking about intimacy, it is the wife's needs that determines what that looks like, at least according to to the ketubah. So, you know, call it archaic that we're talking about money in this marriage contract. But, you know, once again, a case can be made that it's quite a feminist document. Everything in this document is protecting the bride and detailing what the groom is promising her. And it starts to get a little mushy-gushy in the time of the Talmud. Gosh, I love it. I think that's very sweet. So now you might say, okay, if that was, you know, almost 2,000 years ago that we were writing about that certain amount of money, why do we still have that certain amount of money in in the ketubah? It's worthless. So I looked it up, actually, how much 200 zakukim would be worth today. It's based on a measure of silver. And <laughs> opinions range from it it would represent somewhere between $10 and $275. I don't know about you guys, but when I go to Costco, I spend more than $275. That's certainly not a divorce settlement for me. Luckily for us, as I've mentioned before, Jewish law grows, changes, and adapts to contemporary times. There are plenty of orthodox opinions that the 200 zikukim or or zuzim as a, as a specified amount was meant to be symbolic of its value at the time. So there are some opinions that say what that represented was an entire year's living. He would support her fully for an entire year, even after the divorce, God forbid, if they had a divorce. Or um, what contemporary Orthodox rabbis have instructed that we should do is evaluate according to the contemporary value of that much silver. So cool. They say, yes, the current purchase value of silver in one's country. Very interesting article on this. I'm going to put it in the show notes. So I hope it's really clear by now that the ketubah was written almost exclusively for the benefit of the wife, of the woman in the relationship. And even today, uh, in Orthodox weddings, there will be a shot from uh, the photographer who knows what he's doing uh, of the rolled up ketubah being held by the wife under the chuppah. So the groom brings it to the chuppah and he gives it to her when she gets there. And she's holding it to show that she has received it and that, and to show everyone that it belongs to her and only her. 
Okay, it's a promise from the husband to the wife. And it's not only a promise made in vows, it's a promise made in writing. And I know, you know, again, that might seem cold, but going back to the beginning of the episode, for the Jewish people, having something written down is is a spiritual thing as well. It is written, which is the meaning of ketubah, is a very powerful thing. Okay. I also want to pause here for um, a small discussion about what it means to, when the ketubah says, acquiring people. So at the end of this ketubah text, this very old ketubah text that we still use today, the very last paragraph is a legal formulation, okay? And it says, we have completed the act of acquisition from the groom to the bride, according to everything stated above, and everything is valid and confirmed. I want to pause and look at the meaning of the word acquisition, acquired, remembering that it's a legal formulation. What are we acquiring? Okay. And the Talmud goes way in depth into this and brings up some very obvious objections to this word acquired. They say, we, according to the Torah, we don't even own slaves. So certainly we're not saying that as a result of this document or as a result of a marriage, a groom would own, would acquire a bride as though she's an object, right? They said, no, that's not it. He has brought this document and promised her all these things to show that he is trustworthy, sincere, and heartfelt, and most of all committed. So then what is he acquiring? The rabbi said, oh, he is acquiring the status of having an intimate relationship with her. So this document shows that he has proven he can care for her. We trust him enough to provide for her in the way that husbands are supposed to provide for wives, that her father was comfortable allowing her to enter into this adult relationship with him. So is it, you know, a patriarchal guarding of a woman's purity? Yes. Obviously it is. However, it not only shows concern for her financial well-being in the future, should anything terrible happen, God forbid, but this acquisition, from my point of view, and I, I believe from the rabbis, the Talmud's point of view as well, is a protection of her physical safety. And I know, guys, I know that the idea of purity in a woman is patriarchal. It is misogyny. We don't like it. Whatever. And when we read the Ketubah in its historical context, protection of these women's physical safety was something that couldn't be overlooked. You know, obviously those times were not the same as today. I do think that it is a valid and warranted protective measure for those women in that time. Okay? So, you know, once again, if I've ever gone through this and been flippant and been like, oh, it's a man buying a woman and whatever, I, I just want to reemphasize that my understanding of what a ketubah was and is and how it developed was not complete. And now that I've learned a little bit more, I, I think I have a better handle on it. Of course, our learning is never complete, as you know. So we have also found ketubot from the medieval era. As I've said in previous episodes, Jewish wedding customs are very divergent because Jews like to be fashion. We pick up stuff from the culture around us and we want to be fashion. So we kind of do what they're doing and we kind of take our cues from 
the culture in which we live, no matter where we are in the diaspora. Okay. So in the medieval era, um, there was a lot of art, beautiful art that surrounded some of their ketubas. And I want to make sure to put that in the show notes. I'm just going to type it down there so I don't forget it. All right. Cool. So beautiful, beautiful illuminated art. Think like illuminated manuscripts, just super fancy letters, gold leaf, a beautiful symbolism of maybe like something like a crest of the bride's family, a crest of the groom's family. There was artwork that included all the letters of their names sort of hidden within it. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And a lot of ketubas added um, individual stuff too. So there's artistic, linguistic diversity. Of course, the the traditional Aramaic te- text pretty much remained unchanged, but you could see people adding little love poems into the ketuba text. You could see people adding very specific detailing of exactly what you know the bride brought and the groom brought and what and what the agreement was. So through this artwork we can see that the ketuba really was a spiritual emblem, right? It, it represented the beauty that people found and wanted to find in marriage, which is really nice. So this article that I found on Danny Azalea's site, which he is a ketuba artist, he, it says that we have evidence that the art on ketubas in these, in these medieval times was done by Jewish artists and also non-Jewish artists sound familiar. People wanted the very best, right? So we can see reflected. A lot of times we can, we know where a ketubah is from and an old ancient ketubah is from based on the artistic style around the text, which is kind of a beautiful thing, right? It speaks to um, the persistence of Jewish culture and faith in even in exile scattered all around the world. The same ketubah text, different artwork that reflects where they live. But the Ketubah text, the writing itself, reflects who they are. And he says it was even, you know, in these medieval times, you know, 14, 15, 1600s earlier, that the couple would include like their brand in it. So it might be like a lion to represent the bravery of the Jewish people or whatever it was. Um, The Jewish couple's faith and values was represented in the artwork of the Ketubah. Very cool. So we will talk about in the next episode, actually, the importance of leaving this historical trace. And, and it's sort of like a very Jewish vibe that um, we you know we always leave these written down things. And it's it's more than a reflection on the Torah. OK, we'll talk about that for sure in the next episode. This is something that I go through actually with each and every one of my couples. So they could probably give you my <laughs> my whole spiel. So the same article, though, tells us that um, the ketubas in Muslim countries from the same time they mirror the religious and cultural norms of that area, which means the human form does not appear. You're more likely to see animals, plants, geometric shapes, right? The Muslim countries were the math people, right? Geometric ornamentation, architectural features such as Eastern style pillars and pointy arches. Oh, then he says in Italy, ketubas from the Renaissance, lots of gold <laughs> and brightly colored. Very cool. Biblical scenes. But then if you go up to the communities of Eastern and Central Europe, they didn't decorate their ketubas at all. It was viewed as an ordinary legal document, and they were carefully written but contained no Jewish religious art. And what's the common theme between all these ketubas? Over a thousand years, 
over 2,000 years since they found, since that earliest example we have, which probably there were even earlier ketubas than that, same text, basically the same text, wildly different art. So in the next episode, when I talk about contemporary ketubas, what you might want to think about when you're selecting a ketubah for your wedding, there are a lot of people who will sort of disparage the fact that um, ketubas these days are so bougie. But I want you all to remember that in many, many communities, guys, ketubas have always been bougie. You're living in the Renaissance and you've got like a contract accented in gold leaf. It doesn't get bougier than that. Okay. All that said, (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this brief and imperfect history of ketubas, the Jewish marriage contract, and that you will join me next time for a conversation about ketubas today. What are they like? What are the requirements? What do I ask from my couples before they order and sign a ketubah? And things you should consider whether or not you should even get one. So until next time, remember, I think it's the third time I've said it this episode, there's always more learning to do. I welcome all your questions, comments, and reflections. Please email me at yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com. I really want to hear from you, and I really want you to be part of this conversation. So on this beautiful Friday afternoon, it's actually Erev Sukkot. It's been such a pleasure spending the last little bit of time with you. And once again, I thank you for the conversation. Until next time. Well, everyone, I have had the best time being your rabbi for this episode. I'm so glad you joined me for another little bit of insight into planning your perfect Jewish or interfaith wedding. Until you can smash that glass on your big day, you'd might as well smash that subscribe button for this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single thing. Remember, you can always find me, Rabbi Leanne, on Instagram at at yourohiorabbi, all one word, for even more tips, tricks, recommendations, and wisdom on Jewish weddings. If you want to work with me on your wedding, You'll find all the info you need at yourohiorabbi.com. Until next time, remember, you deserve the perfect wedding for you. Don't settle for anything less.